This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. The Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 175, for May MMXIX. Oh, adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. across... And and you know what, men too. Well, uh, 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 Stella. Serious men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa. They're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas. 
as much as I enjoy um, indulging your insanity, uh, we have a promo to record. Oh dear. And what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, Required Reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, Required Reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. Macro the Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, I'm in a weird headspace now because I just watched Bandersnatch, or as I emailed it to two of my students who kept prompting me to watch it, I just snatched the bander. And I'm a fan of Black Mirror. That's a Black Mirror production. But it's strange to be a fan of Black Mirror because all of the episodes are just dark and dire and almost hopeless. There's only one that has hope I think attached to it and yeah so I went in obviously thinking oh what's this going to be like and this was interesting because it was a choose your own adventure and it was almost breaking the fourth wall to a certain extent and you were very much involved in it literally as well as metaphorically and yeah so I got two different endings I ended up in jail, and I was unsatisfied with that because jail's no fun. And so the second ending I got was becoming a programmer in modern day, or at least watching a programmer, and she started repeating or doing the same mistakes as our initial main character had done. So it was interesting. I don't think it's my favorite. Oh, man, there's some really good ones. What's interesting about Black Mirror is that it's scary how possible a lot of the things are and could potentially happen because it's just about technology there's social media going on with it politics things like that and it's just like yikes you know these things either are happening and they're just taking a step further or yeah i could definitely see something like that happening like nosedive i think is one of my favorites just to see how this age of really being desirous and have in desires of likes, you know, on Facebook and things like that, how it can be detrimental and image 
and and how important that is to people and what happens if you take a dive what happens if your social status or things that you can do or buy is based off of the number of likes and i think that one was really good and the other one that's i mean my true favorite is and i I can never remember its actual name i think it's like sand something but it's like the only uplifting one where it's uh these two you find out it's well i don't want to spoil but you find out these two characters are going into I guess kind of virtual reality and you don't know why until the very end how they're able to do this but they they meet each other and one has never been in love before and the other one had and uh they just find each other and I it's the only good one basically the only good happy ending but anyways all that to say that I snatched the bander and I'm going to record about some comics so completely different but it's actually interesting because the comics that I'll be doing take place in apocalypse and so I'm sure there's some sort of connection between apocalypse dark side and black mirror you know he would probably love to watch some of the Black Mirror episodes and and I'm sure Granny Goodness would absolutely love some of the stuff that happens as well. Well, I did want to, I forgot something in my Bowling Green State University Batman Conference 2019 coverage. I forgot something very crucial and key, and I've got to give it up to my mom for this. She is one of the kindest people that I know and very patient. I mean, she put up with me and my horrendous character until I became a more full human being and started making better choices and decisions with my life and was it became nicer but anyways so she so supportive of this conference she was you know considering her and and my father as well coming and watching and I was all up for that but I'm like well you gotta go to you know Ohio you gotta get your I don't know about hotels all that stuff so I think I dissuaded them a little bit because I I just felt like it was going to be too much of a burden but she got me a gift and she said you need to open this after bring it with you to the conference and open it when you're finished with your presentation and I was like okay okay so I put it in a place that I thought I was going to see while I was packing it was very close to where I would have packed and I kept eyeballing it and I as I was eyeballing I was thinking I gotta remember to pack that and guess what I forgot to pack it and I realized this I think when I was driving in West Virginia I was like oh my gosh and I was so upset I was really upset because just the fact that she went to that level of you know love and and care and and gave me this and had that express purpose and then I forgot it so I forgot I was was bummed out but when I got back I opened it and uh, I called her up when I was opening it and gave her a call but it was an awesome shirt I have one that's uh, advice from a moose and this one was advice from a bat and was just uh, cute little things puns and things like that and it was just it was absolutely perfect I'm sorry I couldn't have worn it at the conference because that would have been pretty cool to have advice from a bat and be at a Batman conference but next time we'll say next time the other thing I didn't get to talk about is in spring break or on spring break I went up to New York City I did my yearly pilgrimage to the city to go see a Broadway play and I actually went with my momsy and we went to go see Kiss Me Kate and Kiss Me Kate I had known about and I know that it's a play well it's a play within a play but it's also you know Taming of the Shrew is within there so I ended up reading Taming of the Shrew to prep for this which is great because I think you get better insight as to, to what's going on and you're able to see also things bleed from the play into the actual 
will bleed from the play within a play to the actual outside play that's going on. But the main reason I want to see Kiss Me Kate is because my favorite Broadway actress, hands down, Kelly O'Hara, was the lead. She was playing Kate, and so I was like, yes, so excited. And I've seen her in three things now. I've seen her in Nice Work If You Can Get It and Kiss Me Kate, of course, and Bridges of Madison County. And she's in my absolute favorite musical, which is Light in the Piazza. And I have a couple other soundtracks just of her. Well, actually, yeah, I've got South Pacific when she went the revival and it was like 2013 or something. And then one based off of a film Man, I can't remember. And the film talks about the, this relationship between this white woman and this black man. Ah, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't remember this. But anyways, and it's like in the 50s or something like that. And then what's my last one? Yeah, I really wanted to see her in The King and I, but that was at Lincoln Center. And that's a bit harder to, to do just because there's like more traveling involved just because it's not in you know theater circle or you know the broadway area you got to go a little bit but anyways so kiss me kate and i really loved it and they updated it to a certain extent just like carousel when i went last year it was changed a little bit and and they sort of softened i think some of the stuff that was happening because you know there are there it's for the time and and obviously Taming of the Shrew, you've got some like demeaning things that are happening to the women and, and misogynists and things like that. So uh, I think uh, that they did a good job, but they also kept true, I think, to the original's tone. So I very much enjoy that. And I'm actually going to take another pilgrimage in June. I normally only go once because Broadway is expensive. I mean, if I had a lot of money, I would absolutely see all of the musicals that I want. I would love to see Moulin Rouge just because it has a very special place in my heart. That film, it really gets to me every time. And I really like Aaron Tveit, who is playing the the male lead. But I really felt like it was an important thing to go see Hades Town, And so I haven't seen it yet. But Hades Town is a modern take on the Orpheus myth. And so, hey, I'm a classicist and I teach Latin. So I feel like it's necessary to go and see this. So I'm actually looking forward to that. I think that'll be interesting. And, and it's getting a lot of, I think it's up for most of perhaps the Tonys. I know Be More Chill is also up for a lot, but I got it for after the Tonys. So I'm sure if it wins a lot, that'll be like really popular. So I thought I need to get my tickets now so that the prices don't go up. Plus, you know, I don't lose my seat or anything like that. So there we go. Finally, what happened in April is I organized the first annual comedy showcase at my school, and there had been improv shows in the past, but since the predecessor of the current arts, fine arts head left, there haven't been any because the the new person is, I mean, his bandwidth is just full with, with other things, and I really want to bring it back and not necessarily to participate, but I think just to, to have comedy and humor back in the, the workplace, you know, my, my school and everything. And it went really well. The kids, you know, basically I was just the producer, you know, I set everything up and I told people where to go for the practices, but I had a senior that really helped out and, and led those practices. And I only was able to go to a couple practices fully because of the weird schedule that I'm on. And 
they, yeah, he was able to lead it and I offered feedback sometimes or taught them a new game, but it just turned out really well. And then at the very end, I gave a little bit of a stand up just because I had all of these ideas ruminating. I was ruminating on them after my first one. And so I just wanted to get them out there, which is good because I was afraid that it was going to be a chain effect. And, and then I would all of a sudden be again losing sleep and coming up with all these ideas so at the end of this episode you can listen to that one again and I think well there are of course just with the last one you know you don't know who these people are but if you there are some broader things and I think you'll you'll still find it amusing hopefully but anyways yeah yeah you can just keep waiting for that at the very end of this episode so there you go well, that's all my prologue before I get into all this stuff. So this is I'm by myself, which means I get to do some regular stuff. And regular stuff right now is Birds of Prey, which has been a lot of fun to go back there. I do have some recaps to give because there were a couple issues that she pops up in. Babs, of course, Babs pops up in, but wasn't really worth my time delving into it. So the first, I made mention of this before, it's Batman Day of Judgment number one, subtitle Original Gangsters. November 1999 is the cover date. Writer Scott Beatty, penciler Dean Zachary, inkers Robert Campanella and Sal Buscema, and colorist Noel Giddings. So Day of Judgment features the Spectre going on a rampage and destroying New York City after he was forcibly bonded to the fallen angel Asmodel by Etrigan. Okay, so that's the general idea there. This particular Day of Judgment tie-in was set in Gotham City, and it's actually during the No Man's Land era. So it's actually considered to be part of the No Man's Land crossover, which I thought was rather interesting. In the storyline or the timeline of No Man's Land, the events of this issue are assumed to take place between Robin 72 and Robin 73, just to give you an idea there. I guess I would say like the comicsology. I actually might have gotten this from comicsology. The little blurb says this. Nightwing and Robin guest star in a one shot that finds that the only event that can pull the Dark Knight away from No Man's Land is the Day of Judgment. While Batman's outside Gotham, dead gangsters are rising from their graves and trying to take back their old territories. It's up to Robin and Nightwing to hold down the fort and rescue several of Oracle's operatives who've crossed paths with the gang. The battle lines are drawn between good and evil in Gotham, with Oracle herself self caught in the middle. Lots of Oracle action here, which you might ask yourself, why didn't you cover this? And I just thought, eh, you know, in, in, I gotta say no to some things. So in, in the scheme of things, I think this is okay to pass up. Plus, I feel like I would have had to do Day of Judgment and I wasn't going to read a whole story, a whole crossover and or I, a whole series, mini series. I don't know. Just to do this one old tie in here. So she's here a lot. Uh, first, she's trying to get Batman to leave the Day of Judgment stuff to the JLA. But, of course, he knows that only he can get the job done, as that guy can 
always do there. She expects him to be gone when she turns around from the computer during their conversation, but he's actually still there, which was funny and shocking at the same time. Nightwing and Robin have the most interactions with Babs via radio, and we get to see a fight scene with her and her Screamistics when someone pops up in, inside her abode. And Oracle's operatives, presumably during No Man's Land, do call her Barbara, not Oracle, which I thought was actually pretty interesting. And this may mean she saw them face to face, whereas others who contact her don't. But it actually just seems like this should be incorrect. And I mean, I just read No Man's Land, so I'm surprised if my memory is faulty. But I just feel like they only know her by like a code name and they radio her and everything. So just, yeah, rather interesting. The other issue that she was in was Beast Boy number two, A Face of Mistaken Identity. And this was February 2000. Writer Jeff Johns and Ben Rabb, penciler Justiniano, inker Chris Ivey, colorist Jason Wright. So Beast Boy was a four-issue limited series published by DC Comics from January until April of 2000. The series is credited as being a spinoff of the concurrent Titan series, although the title character Beast Boy was only loosely associated with that incarnation of the Teen Titans. Tom and I actually talked about this a while ago in regards to Betty Kane, a.k.a. or Bet Kane, a.k.a. Bat-Girl, a.k.a. Flamebird, on Taking Flight, which is actually a really expensive item now on eBay now that you can't find that podcast anymore. So there you go. Nightwing actually learns about Beast Boy being incarcerated at this point via Oracle and then decides to take a trip out west to investigate matters on his own. So she or this really didn't warrant me talking more about it. And that's it for the recaps. I was thinking there was a doomsday event, but I remember looking through that and it was just a flashback to zero hour and I thought that's not even worth it mentioning. So there you go. So now we're actually going to get into some birds of prey so here we have birds of prey we're going to do 12 13 and 14 which is its own nice little arc so first up birds of prey 12 Hellbound train december 1999 writer chuck dixon penciler dick giordano inker jordy ensign ensign colors gloria vasquez Black Canary jumps on a heavily armored train, which is supposed to carry several dangerous metahumans from the slab to Star Labs. Oracle had received a tip-off that a breakout is planned and sent Dinah to intervene. Now Black Canary immediately is confronted by U.S. Marshals, but everything gets out of hand when Catwoman joins the fray as well. After using one of her Canary Cry bombs, Dinah and Catwoman are able to enter the train. Catwoman is hired to deactivate the train's communications, and according to her description, it's obvious that her client is the same person that tipped off Oracle. Dinah knocks out Catwoman, but then is overwhelmed by the U.S. Marshals. The Marshals show Dinah the five superpower beings which are held on board, and these include Shrapnel, Sudden Death, Spellbinder, Mammoth, and of course, Joe Gardner. The clone of Guy Gardner. Canary thinks the breakout will still happen, so she and the female U.S. Marshal in command move to the front of the train. Suddenly, a guy wearing a trench coat appears on the tracks. The train is not able to stop in time and is being swallowed entirely into some kind of wormhole. With Black Canary completely off the grid, Oracle contacts Power Girl and asks for her help to find Dinah. We then go to Birds of Prey 
2013. Apocalypse Express, January 2000, was its cover date. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Greg Land, inker Drew Geraci, and colorist Gloria Vasquez. The U.S. Marshall prison train crashes coming out of the wormhole. Black Canary suggests that the train went through a boom tube, and looking at a statue of Darkseid, she knows that she, the U.S. Marshals, and the imprisoned supervillains aboard the train are stranded on Apocalypse. To Donna's surprise, Catwoman made the jump as well. The guy in the trench coat who hired Black Canary and Catwoman appears again and offers them a deal. If the Marshals release the supervillains to him, he will return them all safely back home. However, the female U.S. Marshal in command does not want to negotiate. She guns the guy down, leaving only a destroyed exoskeleton behind. Black Canary and Catwoman leave the crash site to observe the area and a nearby mine. In the tunnels, they find the parademon who was wearing the exoskeleton. His plan was to use the imprisoned supervillains to lead a revolt against the masters of this planet. Sadly, his mother box was destroyed when the U.S. Marshal shot at him, so the, in- so the humans, I was going to say humans, seem to be stuck on Apocalypse. Meanwhile, the U.S. Marshals are repeatedly attacked by planetary forces. Therefore, they see no other way but to free the five supervillains to have a chance of survival. Back on Earth, Power Girl's search for Black Canary is not successful. Oracle has no clue what could have happened to her. And this leads us into the final part. Birds of Prey number 14, Apocalypse Express Part 2. February 2000 is the cover date. The credits listed the writers by new god names here. So Chuck Orion Dixon, Pensler Greg Land, and Inker Drew Duracy. And this is the last time that that pair will be on here, and they are called the new gods. Guest Pensler is Patrick Lightray Zercher, and colors Gloria Beautiful Dreamer Vasquez. Black Canary confronts Farzouf, the little parademon who is responsible for bringing her, Catwoman, and a train loaded with U.S. Marshals and five supervillains to Apocalypse via Boom Tube. He tells him his life story, how he was left to die as a child because he was deformed, but somehow survived and developed a personality slash ego, which is common, uncommon, sorry, uncommon among his race. Now his goal is to take over Apocalypse with the help of the supervillains from Earth. He brought Black Canary on board for revenge because she interfered in one of his plans before. Donna cannot pay the little rump back right now because they are in need of a new mother box as the one Farzouf possessed was destroyed by the U.S. Marshals. While the U.S. Marshals are attacked by an army of Apocalypse i.e. all those little parademons there, and they have to unleash the five formerly imprisoned supervillains on that army. Farsouf leads Black Canary and Catwoman into the armory of the female Furies. And indeed, the parademon finds another mother box in the armory, but then suddenly Lashina shows up and attacks Black Canary. On Earth, Oracle finally receives some valid information regarding the disappearance of Black Canary and the prison train. According to the U.S. Marshal on site, the radiation readouts look like a boom tube was involved, and this frightens Oracle. Meanwhile, Black Canary is able to fend off Lashina with the help of Catwoman, who is more interested in the diamonds lying around than in finding the mother box. Together, they return to the U.S. Marshals just in time before these are overwhelmed by the armed forces of Apocalypse. Using the boom tube, everybody gets back to Earth, where they are greeted by the rest of the U.S. Marshals and Power Girl, who immediately contain the supervillains. Catwoman, of course, is gone without anybody noticing her disappearance. Okay, so I want to talk about the covers. First of all, Oracle is only pictured on one of them. She's only on 12, and she is, in fact, a floating head. And you've got Catwoman and Dinah, and then Varsouf in his trench coat wearing guise on the first one with the train in the background. 
in the next one. It makes sense that Oracle is not in 13 and 14 on that cover because she doesn't really play too much of a role since her hands are tied and she can't communicate cross worlds like this so you've got a dark side in the background a statue rather and then catwoman and dinah and then finally you have lashina wrapping up dinah and catwoman on 14 i think 14 is is probably my favorite but of course 14 sort of boasts something that only happens (laughs) for a short minute so that's pretty interesting well if i could I, i like to go sort of part by part and then i will talk about everything as a whole so in the beginning here uh this was interesting because we pop up in the middle of the action this time and that's usually true of the birds of prey but here it's no prologue mission because it's usually a mission that gets wrapped up and then hey we've got another mission donna let's go but this is middle of the action in the current mission which i thought was interesting The fight with the U.S. Marshals seems unnecessary for me, especially since they will later come out to trust Dinah. She does show her JLA credentials, and there's just no need to knock them out when Catwoman appears. Dinah should have just knocked out Catwoman at the outset, and we could have shortcut some of the conflict. I mean, she does later on, but I don't know if there is necessarily, you know, any need for Dinah to start hitting U.S. Marshals, and then she gets herself into more trouble. When Catwoman and Dinah are together for the first time on the train, she does let slip the pretty bird, and I thought it was very telling the fact that Dinah tells her, don't call me that again, or basically something bad will happen to you, and I think that it's still pretty raw for Dinah, because I'm assuming that Ollie's still dead at this time, and, and that's something, that's a moniker that he always gave her, or an epithet that he already gave, always gave her. The conversation with Beeb was rather interesting. Comes at a bad time, which often happens, and I'm getting used to his emoticons now, because he has like a little carrot. No, I guess it's a less than sign to make the nose so I'm I'm reading everything but it just it increases or it escalates very quickly and gets to threatening because Oracle said I've been looking about you and then Beeb says the same and she says you know if I ever find out that you're like a bad guy or whoever you are you're going to pay the piper and then he says I we're on the same side and I've done some saving and then again asks for some dinner with her to actually meet up and there's an Italian restaurant and it seems like she gets a little nervous, but you know, the mission's at hand. So we cut that off, but it's just really interesting how these conversations are now picking up and, and uh, different emotions are, are being showcased in each of those. When we meet the U S marshals it's clear that one of them is a woman, but later on we find out that her name is Dinah. No, no, no. I'm so sorry. We find out her name, I'm assuming, is Dina, D-I-N-A, which I was thinking to myself, Chuck Dixon, could you not have come up with a better name than Dina since we have a Dina? But then I wondered, especially when we get to the end, because this entire thing, well, especially with the parademons and all that stuff, felt like I was watching Super Troopers. And so I wondered if maybe she was modeled after and supposed to be like Dina Myers in that particular film. And she kind of has that look about her. I mean, she even has red hair. So I wondered if that was a a purposeful thing, but still, you know, Dina and Dino is very, very weird. I mean, one letter is separating the two of them. Again, I ask why is Oracle not doing her research? You know, she's flabbergasted that 
Catwoman's client is the same person that gave her info. And I mean, she needs to background check the people that are giving her info. If she's background checking Beeb and she's not going to meet him until she knows more about him, why is she going off of information that strangers are giving her? So it, it's really shocking. And it seems like something Oracle wouldn't slash shouldn't do. And then we get introduced to Power Girl at the end, Karen Star, no boob window which is nice. And I know that this relationship becomes strained. And uh, I'm so now I'm like, my interest is peaked now and I'll be watching as this unfolds. But she does later tell Dinah that she, of course, was in the Rolodex as well. And I do wonder why Oracle called her in particular, especially since, yeah, Superman was called last time, right? Now, in part two, I thought that it was really interesting that Catwoman is asking these really good questions about Oracle. Like, have you ever met her? Have you ever seen her? All that stuff. Wait a minute. You trust someone you've never met or never known. But Dinah just, like, tells her to back off. And I think that's, on the one hand, it's, like, really naive. Like, actually, Catwoman's got some wisdom there. But on the other hand, I think that Dinah, it shows that trust that's been building between the two of them. And even though it's rather impersonal now, I think it is getting a little bit more intimate. And I think slowly but surely we're building towards the hunt for Oracle, which is sort of the big climax in this uh, who is Oracle situation or question uh, in Dinah's mind. Dinah looks pretty misplaced on Apocalypse and... I thought it interesting just that she knew about it. And I was trying to think if Dinah, it's not like I'm a black canary expert, but I was thinking, huh, you think Dinah's ever been on this? It doesn't really seem like she'd be the best person for that mission. And, but I'm glad later on it said that I've been told enough stories about this. And then also said I've been told enough stories about hell as well. So you kind of think about what characters talk to her about those experiences. But if Dinah looks like misplaced than Catwoman even more so because she absolutely does not belong on a mission in Apocalypse. So it's just really weird. And then at the end, I actually really like the end because it's almost like we've just created a new Suicide Squad, which is certainly how it's presented by Dina. And just that you're going to follow my orders or not, you're going to get a bullet in the back of the head. And if you do follow my orders, then you'll get a good word from me. So I'm like, yeah, Dina's practically the, she's the redheaded, white, thin, Amanda Waller, but just not as cool. And then we've got part three, Catwoman and her diamonds. I mean, my goodness, does she have a death wish? Part of me is thinking, you know, doesn't Catwoman care about her life more than diamonds? But maybe she is just really that bad off that she is deciding to do all this. We have a mandatory fight, of course, Lashina versus Canary. And I feel like it's mandatory just because Dinah hasn't been doing too much. It's the U.S. Marshals that have been doing the majority of the fighting in another scene or other scenes, I should say. And so I think maybe Dixon just wanted her and felt like it, it was needed to have her have some sort of row. And of course you bring her in the female fury. So it's gotta be somebody, but I think the Lashina versus Catwoman fight made more sense just because of their weapon choices. And it was fun for Catwoman too because she found a, a whip that was more apocalypse style. So she was able to do that. But I was surprised that Canary rushed off in the midst of the fight because I thought maybe they would take Lashina down. So you're assuming, I guess Catwoman just beat Lashina on her own, which is kind of interesting that Canary was unable to do so, but Catwoman did. What does that say? Uh, I guess it came down to the weapons. We could always say not fighting prowess, but you know, run Canary runs off and I guess she had a job to do, but it was just a little strange that she did that. 
everything turns out okay. Of course, there's a little Joe Gardner joking at the end of maybe we could get out of here, but Canary says, no, you can go through that boom tube if you want. Yeah, I think, you know, it was an interesting story, but the setting almost felt uncomfortable. It, it just wasn't some place that I would imagine the birds being. And it almost seemed too big or too dangerous for them, which is perhaps the reason why we don't see Darkseid or Granny or other more threatening characters, because I think there's just no way that, that Black Canary or Catwoman could have taken care of themselves in that situation. So you don't have all three female furies, you just have one. So it's almost like watering down the threat level to a certain extent. But it was just, it felt weird. And I mean, you've got this massive army coming at them. And um, that is also weird because if you've got all these parademons and fighting and everything, don't you think that other people would be alerted? And even there is a line about, the other the the female furies are probably they heard battle and so they're they're going there. So I, I think just the setting is is the thing that bothered me the most. I did forget in the third part where we have Farzouf and his backstory. I love the fact that Dinah cuts him off is like it's too much exposition. Shut up! I don't need your backstory. But you would almost be on his side because he's trying to get rid of the masters. But then you realize that once he says, you know, I was given ego. It's more like. Not because he's an oppressed person, but I, he probably wants to be the top of the pile. Rather than just get out from under somebody, he wants to be the top. So you go from empathy to, oh, I'm, not, I'm not sure about if I'm on board with what he's saying. I kind of wondered about the fact that Dinah splits off from the U.S. Marshals, right? And I guess part two, right? Plot-wise, it works out since the two teams have two missions or are given two missions. But initially, they could have all really gone together and had a major fight together. But things just would not have ended up the way they did, especially with the, the five supervillains that they had locked away. There would have been really no need for that. And perhaps, you know, too many marshals in the pot. You didn't need all those to go after Farsouf. But yeah, in the end, I, I just think the marshals were given more action. Dinah was given an obligatory fight. And the setting just seemed a little too big for this book. So I'm going to give it, I think a 7.5 out of 10 birds. And I will say that in the back of 12, 13, and 14, lots of letters in regards to Birds of Prey number 8, and they were overwhelmingly positive, which is really great. And then at the end of 14, both Greg and Drew wrote in just to say how delightful it's been to work on Birds of Prey. So that's the end of an era, about a year, a little over a year. Well, I guess more potentially with some of those uh, side stories and, and little one-offs and miniseries and things like that. But it's been great and, and continues to be beautiful. So we will continue on with new creators, but the same Chuck Dixon. Well, now for some listener feedback. Mail I have one email and a couple comments on previous episodes. I go with the comments on the website, first of all. One of them is from episode 173, which was the Bowling Green State University Batman Conference 2019 recap, and it's from 
Donovan Morgan Grant, my ex-beloved. I'm sorry I wasn't at the presentation where empathy was discussed, but I quickly disagree. Oh, boy. I quickly disagree that Batman has no empathy. You don't have to squint hard to find examples. From his identifying and adopting Dick Grayson, to his general no-kill rule, to his guilt over what... Yeah, right, his guilt. To his guilt over what happened to Barbara in The Killing Joke. If he's so guilty, if he feels so guilty, why'd he put that playing card on her hospital bed, sir? Answer that. Other examples include his attempts to reform Catwoman, Two-Face, Mr. Freeze, Clayface, and the like. He may not be as sympathetic as the other members of the Bat family, but to say or even suggest that he lacks total empathy rings as completely aggressively false. Feel free to turn this into the next monthly question for every guest, and he's got a little winky emoticon. Maybe it will be. My other one, remember, that went on for years was why doesn't Batman trust Catwoman? So maybe I will ask whether Batman has empathy. Maybe I will. P.S. Gotham Knights number 32, written by Devin Grayson, goes into great examples of Bruce's empathy. If you've not read, here's a link elucidating the events here, and it's a Polygon article. You know, it's interesting. He says that he might not be sympathetic, but he's absolutely empathetic. And I'm almost wondering if that's possible. Because there are different levels of, you know, to get up to the empathy, you've got the the pity and the sympathy and the compassion and the empathy. And I'm not sure how you could necessarily be empathetic and not sympathetic. You can certainly be sympathetic and not empathetic, but I don't know about the other way around. So I almost call folly on that, sir. Call folly. And the other comment is from episode 174, my interview with my recent interview with Margaret Scott. It's from Ian Prime, aka Ian Miller. Truly excellent interview by both guest and host. Really appreciated all the insight and thoughtfulness that Scott put into her run as she explains here. Yeah, that was it was a lot of fun. I would say it's an easy interview and the fact that it was really easy to talk to Margaret and and she was so generous with her time. I didn't think I'd get that much time. So I was very thankful for that. And finally, I've got an email from Michael Ridge, and his subject line was super violent issue number 33. Salway Stella. As usual, I enjoyed your episode with Tom Panarese. You two have developed a good podcasting rapport since I first heard you together discussing Bat Dash Girl on one of his earlier podcasts. Oh my gosh, Michael Ridge, you have the highly sought after Taking Flight episode that I just mentioned. You need to save that because it is super expensive and rare. Don't sell it for anything, sir. Don't sell it for anything. Thanks for covering more of Oracle Outside regular Bat Books. I wasn't reading Justice League when she was a member, so this is all new to me. I was very dissatisfied with Batgirl number 33 when I read it. It's probably the first time in the new Barbara Gordon Batgirl where I didn't like anything about the book, plot, characterization, or art. My first draft of this was so negative, I held it for a day to reconsider. This is my revision. First, I don't like stories where James Jr. (laughs) Well, where James Jr. is involved. Both Barbara and Jim seem to have guilt that he has mental problems. That is common enough in the real world, and, as is also common, the problem child uses the family guilt to manipulate them. The only story worth telling about him is how he accepted treatment and how his family got the counseling they needed. James Jr. isn't a failure of Jim's parenting. Barbara didn't make him what he is because they watched violent TV shows. Real-world families would be helped by my heroes addressing the issue directly. Because they don't, every story with him is just sad. 
Second, I don't like the current semi-estrangement between Barbara and her dad. The basic soundness of the relationship is part of the attraction of the characters. The arc has it that Barbara thought that Jim's emphasis on Gordon's don't give up meant Barbara disappointed Jim when she accepted her life without the use of her legs. That would be a very negative message, and it's hard to believe that she wouldn't have talked directly to him about that. The lack of communication implied between them is out of character. By the way, this motto that Jim taught to both his kids is actually close to the meaning of the clan Gordon motto, Bidand, which is Gaelic for bide or stay. The motto is interpreted as Gordon's stay and fight, Gordon's cope with whatever happens to them, or just Gordon's survive. Third, I found Batgirl's violence in this issue to be very disturbing. The flash of anger at the warden when she finds out he has been released is understandable. That would be okay for the story, but the sustained violence of her questioning of the witnesses isn't. Violence at this level punctures the superhero balloon and starts me thinking about how I would feel about this if it happened in real life. If D'Artagnan's opponents were left on the ground screaming and weeping instead of just clutching their chests and falling off camera, the Three Musketeers would not be a fun adventure. I did find one thing I liked in this issue. Frankie is still around and apparently acting as a researcher for Batgirl. I'm really ready for an arc that shows more of her old supporting cast, even if she continues with her candidate after election night. At least it's election night and this assassination arc can wind up soon. Wanting Babs to fly higher, Michael Ridge. Michael, you say a lot of great things and I really, I I, I can't disagree with you because you and I are in the same place there. And that's why it's hard to, you know, rate some of those things, those books, because like, I felt like they're written well, but I just disagree with what's happening within them. And I'd love to hear your feedback now with, um, in regards to what Margaret Scott said, you know, defending how she's been writing James, defending how she's written the the Jim and, and Barbara relationship. I agree that I think that that is the most stable and beautiful relationship that we have in the DC universe. And I don't want to see this way. I don't think it should be this way. But this is where we are. And I'm hoping that it will be better, you know, after Margaret Scott, once she winds up and, and once uh, the new writer comes on. So We'll see. But yeah, I mean, you hit on everything that I <laughs> I had thoughts on as well. So, And you'll be happy that Tom will be returning. He'll be returning next month. And then it'll be a little bit of a space before Tom comes back. So hopefully you realize that because some people, some people texted me and wondered why Tom was on so much. And I said, did you not listen to every intro I've given where I said that Tom is on because the JLA and he's helping me do that. And so I'm glad that you realized and you pieced together the fact that Tom is on because we're doing some JLA together. Michael, thank you so much for writing in and expressing all that. I'd love to hear your thoughts further uh, if you after you listen to the Margaret Scott interview. And thank you to anyone who wrote in and posted, obviously, on the website. I checked that. And you can always write in emails as well. Remember, Oracle at gmail.com. Well, I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl 86, a.k.a. Batgirl 34. But first, Zias' Radio Hour featuring It Feels Like I'm Drowning by Two Feet. You keep dreaming and dark scheming, yeah, you're doomed. You're a poison. And I know that it's some truth 
All my friends think you're vicious And they say you're suspicious You keep dreaming and dark scheming Yeah, you do So plastic and it's tragic just for you was that I couldn't remember. It's called Far From Heaven, which is based off of a 2002 film, and it does take place in the 50s. And I also was thinking about, you know, it's this relationship, this budding relationship between this woman and this black man. And the woman I also remember is married to a man who is struggling with his sexuality, and he has some secret flings, I'm pretty sure, some secret homosexual flings. And I, in the musical, he's played by the beautiful Stephen Pasquale. And he, Stephen is also the guy who plays the lead opposite Kelly in the Bridges of Madison County musical. So it's great that they already had a rapport set up and everything for that. But I just wanted to <laughs> say that I remembered what that particular musical was. Well, I only have one issue, of course, since there are no birds of prey in the uh, modern times. And we are getting to the end of Margaret Scott's run here. This is the final arc. 
So this is back row number 34, a.k.a. 86, Turbo Trio, part one of three. Writer Margaret Scott, penciler Paul Pelletier, inker Norm Rapmund, and colorist Jordi Belair. At the Fat and Flesh Gastropub, which I don't really even know why you would go there, in Burnside, Vulture, Shark, and Fox, the terrible trio, discuss business and reveal that they were the ones behind Alejo's assassination plot and they were the ones who hired Cormorant. They're disappointed in Cormorant's failure, and they reveal that they have an investment in Blackgate, which will dry up if it closes. They plan on putting the organized back in organized crime. They also plan on jumping in Gotham with a grand opening in the way of a party. Fox brings up the problem of Batgirl and suggests they invite her to the opening, but Vulture, the money behind the three, disagrees and tells Fox to keep Batgirl away. Shark ends up siding with Vulture. The next morning in Midtown Gotham, Batgirl parkours around town, meditating on the terrible traffic. She somehow sneaks into the office while there's a party going on, celebrating Alejo's victory. So now she's Congresswoman Alejo. Babs works while the party goes on, desiring to keep her head down since she's been given so many chances and her psycho brother is out and about. Jason goes to visit her and tries to give her some comfort, which she barely accepts and is suspicious about. His motives are interrupted when an intern opens a package and discovers a severed hand in a note to Batgirl, care of Alejo. The party breaks up and the police arrive. There is tension between Gordon and Alejo. Gordon makes a joke in poor taste about police corruption and Alejo tries to defend herself by using Babs' name. Gordon refuses to give the info to Batgirl. He's not the Bat family liaison. Since when, Gordon? Then Babs appears and adds to the tension, referencing the fact that she moved because or she moved out of their home because of the James Jr. debacle. At the clock tower, Batgirl starts detectiving, noting that the hand is connected with three different people. The blood from a young African woman here on a work visa, the fingerprints from a middle-aged Hispanic man and confidential informant for the GCPD, and the ring belongs to a wealthy Caucasian who vanished after his home was burglarized, so all races practically are covered. She continues investigating and finds that the only thing they have in common is uh, a mention either by them or someone associated with them, of a nightclub opening in downtown Gotham. While all this Nancy drooling is going on, Alicia has been blowing up Babs' phone. Babs has ignored the calls and switches to emergency only, but Alicia calls that too. Babs is annoyed and states the reason for the emergency line is, of course, for emergencies, but Alicia says this is an emergency. Some British firm has been buying a lot of shares in Gordon Clean Energy and is demanding a meeting and will potentially freeze assets. Alicia needs Babs to be there, but she only says, I'll try, and tells her to do whatever is in the best interest of the people that the company serves. Post-phone call, Batgirl is in the air duct of the new club, somehow slips a battering through a vent and ties up Fox. She demands answers about Alejo and after being disappointed, knocks him or her out, can't really tell the gender of Fox, before being knocked out herself by Shark. Meanwhile, at the Lakewood apartment complex, which is the new residence of Babs, Jason brings food to Babs and tries to figure out how the conversation will go. Is this a potential shipper? I don't know. When the doorman arrives with some stuff and throws it down in the hall, saying Babs is check bounced and it will soon go to the street, Jason is rather concerned. Back at the club, Fox introduces everyone and says the guests are there because the terrible trio because the terrible trio has blackmailed them, and they will be taking one third of the profits. But the good news is, because apparently that's all bad news, which it is, that the 
terrible trio will protect them from the law, press, and the bats. And at the last one, he reveals an unconscious Batgirl in a Houdini-esque getup, complete with straitjacket and empty tank. I'm sure it'll fill up soon. Next, things get terrible. Okay, well, first, let me talk about the art and give my favorite panel. Per usual, the variant cover by Joshua Middleton is beautiful. And this time, it actually relates somewhat to the interior because a lot of them don't have as much of a correlation. But here, she's in front of the clock tower. And that's actually something we see her in the clock tower. And we also have almost a, a reference to that in one of the inside pages. I also really like page four where she's leaping across town both the close-up on her and then at the bottom with the silhouettes and you can see the different moves that she's doing across the building tops. And also page 10 on the left, the silhouette of Batgirl in the clock tower with the computers and clock in front of her. So my first, I guess, issue with this particular issue is how it was revealed or how the terrible trio were revealed. It was a little anticlimactic. You're being built up this entire time with the Alejo slash Cormorant, wondering who is behind it. And, you know, I had all these guesses as well. And clearly it's someone big and powerful. And then you just start off and these three are having a conversation and they mention Cormorant and you're like, oh, I guess they were behind it. Whereas I think it could have been better served in another way. I don't know if midway they're revealed or in this first issue they, I don't know, have Batgirl and then it's and she's wondering, you know, who you are and in sort of a kingpin-esque manner, you know, would you believe we're the terrible trio and it's revealed that way? Or could they have done it at the end of the previous issue? I don't know. But the way that it's done here I think is very anticlimactic and I think all the buildup that Margaret Scott had with the Cormorant and everything and who's behind it, this this was uh, unsatisfying. It was unsatisfying. I do wonder, in regards to the Terrible Trio, why in particular they did not want Batgirl harmed, In especially with the Cormorant. I think it's clear in this issue why, and I guess maybe the reasoning is the same, just that if you get rid of or hurt one bat, then the rest of the bats are going to follow. So I guess that's the reasoning, but it just seemed like it was more personal, and that's why I wondered if someone intimately related or associated with Batgirl or Barbara Gordon was behind the whole thing. Batgirl's somehow slipping into the party was it was a Peter Parker move, but if you look at the art and how it's presented, it just seems utterly ridiculous and impossible how she was able to do it because she literally slips in like behind people. She goes in through a window and somehow makes it to her cubicle. I don't even know where she changes. So that was a little bit weird. We have Barbara Barbara picking a fight with her father once again, and this just seems like this is how it's going to be now. And, you know, people get on me personally for avoiding people when I have a problem with them because I just feel like I'll get over it when I get over it, and right now I just don't want to see your face. But, you know, this seems worse that you just, in particular, you are you are going after someone because you're upset. So I, I don't know. You tell me which one is healthier. They're both unhealthy, I suppose, but which one is the healthier option? I think Gordon is a little bit out of character here. I guess he's just fed up. He doesn't like Alejo, so I guess that's why he's pretty nasty. But the the joke in poor taste about, you know, corruption, which he's been fighting against, and then for whatever reason, all of a sudden deciding he's not a liaison between the GCPD and the bats. I mean, when did that happen? So a little weird there. But the big issue that I actually have with this, besides the how the revelation went down, is Gordon clean energy. I feel like this whole 
point, the story point, is rather distressing. It takes Alicia calling the emergency line in order for Babs to answer. And clearly, if Alicia keeps calling, there is some sort of problem. And I get that Batgirl's current mission is a priority, but I feel like she should be concerned with her company as well. And it isn't the first time Alicia or even Frankie have called regarding this issue. So because some of these seeds have been laid throughout Margaret Scott's run, So I would also think that Babs maybe would be suspicious of the company or say that she would investigate later. And then she can't promise suddenly to be there and just tells Alicia to do what's best for the people Gordon Queen Energy helps. And number one seems pretty flaky. We know Barbara Gordon is flaky, but we we also know that Batgirl is not flaky. And I think that that's pretty bad. The other thing is the fact that if she's not going to the company, then the people that Gordon Queen Energy is helping are clearly in jeopardy because there's an issue with the company. So that seems weird. It's just like Babs can't see anything else in front of her besides this mission. And I feel like of all people, she should be able to multitask. I mean, that's Barbara Gordon at core that's oracle at her core and you know is this mission that personal for her that she would drop everything and go after it yes someone was murdered obviously we can't say that that's unimportant but not at the hands of the cormorant which that that was pretty big for her it wasn't alejo and it's not someone at the office so i'm just wondering why this mission is is so important to her and why she's just given up on gordon queen energy is this a way for dc to get away from barbara having a company and uh, a means for herself and everything. So it's almost as if, you know, if that goes away, Burnside has already gone away. It's almost as if we're erasing the things that the Burnside crew had done. Like we're Thanos snapping the Burnside crew away, crew away, and we are seeing what is left. And that's really what we're doing. We're stripping it down. The costume is gone. The place is gone. Is Gordon Queen energy gone? Haven't really seen Frankie and Alicia. Yes, they popped up, but have they been like physically present besides a phone call? No. So Thanos has snapped at DC and it's hitting Batgirl. That's my thinking. The Terrible Trio have a glorified protection racket. Is that technically organized crime? I don't know. I guess I could ask one of my friends in organized crime. Also, couldn't all those people overtake the Terrible Trio? Because shouldn't that mob basically be pretty angry that they were blackmailed and they're being extorted? But hey, there's good news. We're gonna, you know, protect you. I mean, the Terrible Trio, besides Shark, seem pretty wimpy. So I think they could be taken down. And finally, what is Jason up to? He is being nice. Is he just trying to make up for it? Is there some shipping possibility? Do I really want there to be shipping possibility? Probably not with this era of Jason. He's really got to turn it around for me. But uh, Dick and Babs, I mean, they had that potential just shortly in the past. And so I feel like, gosh, why couldn't we have explored that? But here we have Jason, potentially. Uh, I'm sure he's going to be helping her out somehow. And will Barbara be homeless? You know, that's all we need for Josh to say his annoying catchphrase or make a new one. Homeless, homeless hero. I I don't need that to happen. So hopefully something turns around with Gordon Queen energy. So, yeah, I wonder if this will be a busy arc. We've got the terrible trio. We've got Gordon Queen energy. And this is it for Margaret Scott. I don't know. I think it was an okay issue. It's setting up the final arc, obviously, giving Batgirl big problems to deal with, which is interesting for the final arc. you think it'd be a midway arc and then see how she levels out after that. But we'll see how the next writer picks up the threads left behind or the damage, I suppose, that 
Barbara Garding calls her life. <laughs> so I'm going to give this a 7.5 out of 10 bats. Next up is Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosities. Ah, that's like surviving the Game of Thrones series finale. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosities segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I am very glad to be with you. Today, I'm looking at Batman Adventures number 19, cover dated April 1994, and Nightwing number 59, dated June 2019. Batman Adventures number 19 was originally cover priced at $1.50. We have the usual creative team of Kelly Puckett as the writer, Mike Parabek was the penciler, Rick Burchett was the inker, and Rick Taylor was the colorist. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This work was reprinted in The Batman Adventures Volume 2 and appears to be available on Comixology. Our story is entitled Troubled Dreams, Act 1, Nightmare Over Gotham. We open in a nighttime alley with Batman fighting the street gang called the Scorpions. Suddenly, the gang flees in fright, and Batman feels a wave of fear, apparently caused by a silhouette of the Scarecrow. Back in the Batcave, Batman makes a log entry, but he is unable to complete a sketch of the silhouette. That night, Bruce has a nightmare of the night his parents were killed. But, in a switch, a giant form of the Scarecrow is about to snatch Bruce's parents. Bruce awakens, and Alfred tells him that he had a nightmare of the Scarecrow himself. Batman then learns the Scarecrow is on the loose. Act 2 who scares the Scarecrow? The Scarecrow strikes at a convention of Gotham psychiatrists. Batman tries to catch the villain, but then he retreats in fear. Shaking the fear off, he then gives chase, but the Scarecrow gets away. Back in the Batcave, Batman ascertains that the fear attacks are induced by the Scarecrow, with a vision implanted on the visual cortex used by a high-frequency beam. And Batman traces the origin of the beam. Act 3, Beneath the Mask. Batman tracks down the beam to a scientist's lab, where he uses the fear experiments to enrich his work. Batman pummels the scientist, and then the Scarecrow himself, after tracking him down downtown. Back at Wing Manor, Alfred says, having nightmares every night is no way to live. But he quickly apologizes to Bruce, as we see that Bruce is in a moment of reflection, looking at a portrait of his parents. The End I'd have to double-check, but I think this is the Scarecrow's third appearance in this title already, and here we are up to issue number 19. And we've yet to see other members of Batman's Rose Gallery, such as Two-Face or Mr. Freeze, which is a bit disappointing. As for the story himself, uh, some of the elements do work with a new gimmick of Scarecrow conveying the fear. Nice touch was naming one of the streets Kane, presumably after Bob Kane and Bruce's dream. If that scientist was named somewhere in the story, I totally missed it, and I think that sort of downgrades the story for me, as he was more of a co-villain in this as much as the Scarecrow. The artwork was very good, with Batman looking genuinely afraid, and the Gotham City streets never looked better. And it did have a touching ending. Those are my comments, and I'm going to give Batman Adventures number 19, 7 out of 10 bats. Now to everybody's favorite segment within a segment, Nightwatch, where I look at the Nightwing title from a shipper's perspective. In Nightwing number 59, we have a new writer in Dan Jurgens, and in the story, B gives Dick, or excuse me, Rick, what appears to be a smartphone, and they share a kiss. Uh, the majority of the issue, however, deals with Rick and the Nightwing crew member Malcolm Hutch and an arsonist villain called Burnback. B really seems to be less of a focal character in an already crowded book, despite the kiss. Ah, uh, yeah, but the kiss. I can't recall the last time Dick, uh, excuse me, Rick, kissed someone. So, as such, I'm compelled to give Nightwing number 59 a very mild shipper alert. 
Well, I don't want to forget Stella can also be found on the Required Reading Podcast. I also want to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out the Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensationalist Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, and Convention Correspondence Podcasts. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter at B2MBatBooks. That's where I tweet about, oh, some nightstand reads, old Batman comic books, maybe a Saturday morning salute as well. And maybe a pick of an old TV listing. True. And I hope you check it out, and more so give it a follow. The handle again is B-T-O-N Batbooks. B-T-O as in Batgirl to Oracle, and Batbooks as in Batbooks for Beginners. That's the other podcast that I can be found on. The Batbooks for Beginners podcast is one where we examine and review trade paperbacks of collected material of Batman and related characters. I co-host that with my good friend Jerry. You can also find us talking about independent comics, other titles, movies, and whatnot on the Professor Frenzy Show. Please give that a follow if you're not doing so already. Leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TBU website, and please consider us giving us a good review on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your support. What terrifying trio will try to triumph over Batman in the next issue? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these startling questions will be tried, tribulated through to the tribunal next time. Same Batstella feed, same Batstella site. Thanks, Chris. Now it's time for my anime watch list. And this is a time where I give you either, well, usually I give you a show and a movie that I've either recently or in the past viewed and I feel like it's worth a recommendation. And this time it's going to be two shows because I've been, I've not seen, I think, any movies. I've just been, yeah, I'm waiting to see Nausicaa soon, this month, in fact, again but it's been a while since i've seen her and i think maybe i'll recommend that later on but and i'll always recommend a studio ghibli film please this is so the first show is yagate kimi Naru or bloom into you it was it finished in 2008 and 13 episodes you has always loved shujo manga and awaits the day she gets a love confession that sends her heart aflutter with bubbles and blushes a lady after my own heart. And yet when a junior high classmate confesses his feelings to her, she feels nothing. Disappointed and confused, Yu enters high school still unsure how to respond. That's when Yu sees the beautiful student council president Nanami turn down a suitor with such maturity that she's inspired to ask her for help. But when the next person to confess to Yu is Nanami herself, has her shujo romance finally begun so as you could probably tell this is in fact a yuri anime and and i do depending i don't like fan service yuri but like sweet ones i do like and this is perhaps one of the best yuri that i've ever seen because it deals with a lot of deep emotions and problems that characters have had in the past and nanami has like some emotional issues and and she does not like herself and so she says that i you know don't fall in love with me she confesses right to you but she says don't fall in love with me because i hate myself and i could never love someone who loves something that i hate and i mean that's number one super (laughs) super low and, and and depressing but number two just something that i feel like i've not really witnessed in an anime heretofore and it's just it it deals with a lot of i think 
really interesting topics. And so I, I highly recommend this if you're okay with Yuri. I really, really do. Again, probably the best Yuri. And you know, Citrus, I think was also, it's a, it was around this time. I think it was earlier in 2018 or maybe in the spring. And everyone was all about Citrus, but I, I really don't like abusive number any any sort of abusive anime but like the yuri ones i mean there are some i watch you know shipper films to see or shipper youtube to see what i'm gonna watch next and whenever i see like these characters are are horrible to another character and at the very end you know the other character is like you know why don't you love me and then there's some sort of like final reconciliation i just can't i can't get behind that and so citrus i think is is rather abusive and, and emotional violence and i i just can't get behind it it was i watched it but it was not my favorite so i recommend this bloom into you and I'm hoping, I hope it comes back because it was left on a cliffhanger. I know anime sort of stops whenever it wants to stop, and, and which is great because it keeps that creativity going and they're not just doing it for sales. But I think this one really deserves to keep going and there's so much more of the story to tell. The other TV, what? The other, yeah, TV series, I guess. The anime series that I watched was My Roommate is a Cat. And that's the English the Japanese was rather long and I just decided to spare you because I already feel like I'm doing a bad job of pronunciation. So this is 2019. So it's rather recent, 12 episodes. Novelist Subaru Mikazuki, who is shy and not good with other people, and Haru, the cat that has been living a severe stray life. This is a story of them suddenly living together and describes the happiness of living together from both points of view, their own eyes. This was also good. I think this had a deeper message as well and it was great because the first half normally was from the point of view of the human and then the second half was from the point of view of the cat so you got to see both of them and their their different viewpoints and understandings of what was going on but the novelist he's a bit of a he called him an introvert here but he's almost like an agoraphobic and because of this cat like he starts to grow and open up so it's interesting to go from episode one to the last one and see what the what the guy is able to do and it was fun but it was also heartbreaking because the novelist is is emotionally damaged as well just from a, a tragedy that happened in his family and then haru is also has because of being astray and living on the streets has she has had a tough time of it too so you've got these two damaged people finding each other and beginning to trust each other and rely on each other and protect each other and so both of these highly highly recommend both have Japanese with English subtitles and they both have an English dub so you can pick your poison there but I think this is probably one of the few times that I'm like really excited for anyone to try either of those and and just give me feedback on it because I'd love to have a discussion with you I think they're great finally it's my literature recommendation and I will say that I finally finished my first manga series I don't know how many I would ever delve into but uh, Made Sama finally finished it up so all 19 volumes I'm and I'm happy to have gone on that journey because the anime which I really loved only went about halfway or so and even when I was reading it it was out of order some things happened that 
uh, had not yet happened or happened sooner than they were. So it's interesting. But anyways, I, I recommend them if you like manga, but I'll recommend other things right now. So first of all, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Pecola or Pecola, I, I'm not really sure. Breed Love, a young black girl, prays every day for beauty. Mocked by other children for the dark skin, curly hair, and brown eyes that set her apart, she yearns for normalcy, for the blonde hair and blue eyes that she believes will allow her to finally fit in. Yet as her dream grows more fervent, her life slowly starts to disintegrate in the face of adversity and strife. It's always tough for me to say I enjoyed it. I was engaged with it, and I do think that it's rather well done. It is, But it's Toni Morrison, and so it's not an uplifting novel. But I do recommend it if you... And it's shorter, shorter than Beloved. It was about 200 pages, and the book was rather squat, so... I think you'd be fine to read that in a couple of days. But again, I would just, you know, if you're looking for an upper, it's not going to be. And I think it's also one of those banned books, a controversial book. So just be prepared for that as well. Next, The Bird King by G. Willow Wilson. It tells the story of Fatima, a concubine in the royal court of Granada, the last emirate of Muslim Spain, and her dearest friend Hassan, the palace map maker. Hassan has a secret. He can draw maps of places he's never seen and bend the shape of reality. When representatives of the newly formed Spanish monarchy arrive to negotiate the sultan's surrender, Fatima befriends one of the women, not realizing that she will see Hassan's gift as sorcery and a threat to Christian Spanish rule. With their freedoms at stake, what will Fatima risk to save Hassan and escape the palace walls? As Fatima and Hassan traverse Spain with the help of a clever jinn to find safety, the bird king asks us to consider what love is and the price of freedom at a time when the west and the muslim world were not yet separate this was i picked it up because g will wilson you know writing ms marvel and the tag at least seemed interesting and i started reading and i thought okay some palace intrigue and then it changed rather sharply in like 100 pages and i thought oh wow this is not what i was expecting and i really enjoyed it it was really engaging and i recommend it Next, Motor Girl by Terry Moore, specifically the omnibus, so the whole thing. When a UFO crashes into Samantha's junkyard, she's happy to make repairs and send the little visitors on their way. But E.T. is smitten with a marine veteran, and now an industrial giant wants to buy the land to install their anti-UFO weapon. With the help of her buddy Mike, a 600-pound gorilla, Sam is always prepared to defend those who can't defend themselves, but who will save Sam from the PTSD and shrapnel that threaten her life? To survive, Sam must ultimately face the greatest battle of her life, reality. I'm at the point where, and I guess it's taking me far too long, because everything I read from Terry Moore, I love. It's amazing. He has such great female characters. So he's one of those authors, right, that can break the mold. And, you know, being a male author and writing female characters, I've read Rachel Rising, I've read echo and i just love them all so now i'm finally going to dive into strangers in paradise there's a sale on comicsology got all 19 volumes so that'll be my little summer project and basically anything he puts out i probably will buy and this is no exception it's great and uh, really thoughtful and at the end is a bit of a twist and finally kind of a semi recommendation because it wasn't my favorite but i'll at least put it here to show that i did it crime and punishment by fyodor dostoyevsky crime and punishment focuses on the mental anguish and moral dilemmas of rodian 
Raskolnikov, an impoverished ex-student in St. Petersburg who formulates a plan to kill an unscrupulous pawnbroker for her money. Before the killing, Raskolnikov believes that with the money he could liberate himself from poverty and go on to perform great deeds. But confusion, hesitation, and chance muddy his plan for a morally justifiable killing. Oh my gosh. Practically this whole novel, I mean, yeah, it happens. He kills her. But then he's, I mean, he mucks it up. He's an idiot. And no one catches him for like the whole novel. It's ridiculous. Oh, it's almost as bad as an American tragedy. But I think I still hate that all the more because that guy was just awful. At least with Rodian, he he was trying to he was doing a terrible thing for the right reasons. Whereas an American tragedy he was doing a terrible thing for terrible reasons. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. But I can see why it's got a high place in literature. Well, that is it for my episode under two hours, <laughs> which is how I like them, right? Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolloracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher, like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. And once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Next time, it'll be Tom and I doing some JLA. But until then, fly on, Bats lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. <sighs> I love a happy ending, don't you? That's it for the improv side. If it's okay with you, I thought I'd do a short stand
remember years ago, Mr. Coleman had this bright idea that during a meeting to basically get Mr. Bird to stop, we're to throw briefs at him. Briefs, briefs are male underwear. Briefs, right? So make a brief, boom, hit him with a brief. This did not go over well. It didn't happen. I guess administration poo-pooed it. But just think of how many briefs would be, I mean, the whole floor would be covered with doom alone. Mr. Collins has been around for a while, and I don't even just mean in coming. He's been on this earth. <laughs> His college roommate was actually Moses. Rumor is that actually Moses broke the first set of tablets because of Mr. Collins. <laughs> they were both partying very hard at Mount Sinai University. <laughs> Moses had enough and cracked it over Mr. Collins' text. God gave us another chance. We got another set. <laughs> the other thing that's been around a while is prom. I know it's prom away. Students like to ask me why I don't go to dances, and my stock answer is I don't want my opinion of you to change. I mean, just imagine, I'm, I'm kind of in my mind, I'm, you know, this is a student. <laughs> This is me walking around. Shannon, do you know you have changed? <laughs> What's that thing that teachers or parents tell you when you're dancing too closely together? Yes, leave room for Jesus. Does anyone ever think about what this would look like? Okay, so there's Jenna and her mom, Dave, whoever it may be, you know. Here's Jesus. <laughs> that, is, that is a frightening image. <laughs> oh my goodness. I make fun of Covenant a lot. And uh, I think we all do a little bit. But you know, Covenant loves you. I don't want to prove that to you. But it's kind of a sad, scary story. If you've gone upstairs to Bob's Burgers, <laughs>
French Capital, um, high school workers. And so they're in our community. So we've got actually an outreach program now that goes out and evangelizes those vultures. <laughs> I was recently driving past them, their arms were spread out. <laughs> and mercy me was blasting. Hey, thank you so much for coming tonight. I'm just so happy with you guys. They did such a great job. Give them a round of applause.